Hello, I'm Sam Brakegear and welcome to Brains Bike Back. In this podcast, we look at everything to do with psychology, technology, and all the bits in between. We've all heard of hard skills and soft skills. These terms are common in the workplace, job interviews, and education. However, what these skills entail exactly and how they can be improved is a little bit difficult to pinpoint. To discuss these skills, I'm joined by one of the world's leading experts in the area of neuroscience. With more than 200 peer-reviewed research reports and more than 12,000 citations under his belt. He is also the founder and CEO of Cognitive Design and Statistical Consulting and has a PhD from the University of California, Santa Barbara, Todd Maddox. And for on your onto something piece, we have results of a new survey which advocate that the public wouldn't trust companies to scan social media posts for signs of depression. Todd, how you doing? Hey, pretty good. How are you? Yeah, I'm not too bad. I'm very good. I'm very good. Thank you for joining me. Where are you today in the world? I always love to ask. Sure. I am in Austin, Texas. I love Austin, Texas. I love it, <laughs> as I'm sure many people do, since I swear it's one of the fastest growing cities in the U.S., as far as I'm aware. It is. Uh, I have lived here for t- almost 25 years, and the growth, I mean, the population has doubled, and downtown doesn't look anything like it used to. It's crazy. Do you think it's for the better, or do you think that it's to like the detriment of the city? Do you think Austin is less or more weird? as they say. Well, um, that's, that's a really interesting question. I'll give you sort of a, a short answer. So um, it's really good for the value of my home. <laughs> okay. If I, if, I, if I purely want to talk, you know, financial, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in my 50s. So it's, uh, it, the town's getting a little big for me. That said, I think uh, the number of young people moving in is just astronomical. And it's just as weird as it always was. So in that sense, it's good. I'm, I'm a I'm a SoCal guy, so um, this is as close to SoCal as you're going to get in Texas. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, it's like I always see it as like a liberal oasis. It's so bizarre how like you almost step into Austin and it just feels like it's just like a little bubble. Like you like obviously I'm I grew up nowhere near Texas, and I obviously have a stereotype of what Texas is in my head from what I see in like TVs and films, and then you get to Austin. And there are certain parts which like, are kind of similar in the sense it is stretched out. You need a car. It's not as like walkable. But at the same time, the culture itself, you can just feel there's a different vibe there. And I love the, the keep Austin weird uh, mentality that they have there. How did you make the move? So you're from South Cal- Southern California. So I, I used to be a, a university professor. And um, I actually moved. I was uh, My first university job was in Tempe, Arizona at Arizona State University. And then I was there for four years, and then I moved to the University of Texas at Austin, and I was there almost 20. So that's what that's what brought me here. My wife is still a faculty member at the university, and uh, I am now sort of doing my own thing. So, uh, but we haven't left. Awesome. Um, let's let's get into that then. You touched upon like obviously what you've taught, but just for our listeners that perhaps don't know who you are, would you be able to tell us who you are and what it is exactly you do and what is it about your your experience and what you teach really? Yeah, so I'm I'm uh, Todd Maddox. I have a PhD in uh, psychology and neuroscience, and I spent 25 years uh, as a university professor really focusing on conducting research. And the research that I conducted focused on the neurobiological basis of learning, memory, and performance. So basically, 
if you're in a learning situation, what parts of your brain need to be engaged for that learning or that training to be effective? And then what I've been doing since, uh, so I've actually been out of academics for four years and I now uh, am a consultant. What I've been doing is using this knowledge of the brain basis of learning to help technology providers build better technology. So I help people identify technologies and build technologies that optimally engage the relevant systems in the brain. And to, you know, I know we're going to discuss hard skills and soft skills. This is directly relevant to that. So I'll, I can actually talk a little bit sort of at a high level about the distinct learning systems in the brain, ways in which those need to be engaged and which ones are relevant for the different kinds of skills that are necessary. And the first thing that comes to mind when I think about like how in-depth your knowledge is surrounding learning and the optimal kind of way to learn and just absorb knowledge. Does this mean that you have like the secret skills or secret hacks to just learn things like easily? Like if you want to learn Mandarin because of everything that you know of how to how to learn more efficiently, do you, do you reckon you could do it like in a week, in a month or like <laughs> anything like that? Um, well, so, you know, me personally, you know, I'm aging. I'm a I'm a baby boomer. <laughs> Uh, and um, significant parts of my brain, uh, in particular what, what I call the cognitive learning system, uh, which uh, encompasses the prefrontal cortex, which is right behind your forehead, and the medial temporal lobes on the side of your head, this is the system that your average person thinks of when they, when they think of learning. Mine is in decline. So I would actually have a much harder time learning something like Mandarin than a young person. That said, if I want to learn Mandarin, I know what systems should be engaged and it shouldn't just be the cognitive system. And then I can look at the technologies that, are, that would be ideal for, for learning that. Cool. Awesome. Uh, do you speak any other languages just out of interest or have you, have you managed to teach yourself any skills or abilities using like what you know from like optimizing learning? You know, it, that's that's interesting. So um, so in college, I took Spanish. I actually took many, many years of it. But <laughs> now I look back on it. I became book smart at Spanish, but I never actually utilized it. So <laughs> right. So so I learned I learned some words. I learned grammar. I learned what I call the, the what of Spanish, but I never learned the how. I never really learned it conversationally. Um, and so, frankly, that that was all a waste of time. I have been uh, <laughs> I have been trying to teach myself a musical instrument. Mainly, that's in in lieu of meditation because I can't seem to get myself to meditate. So it's it's a nice uh, stress reducer uh, in, in that sense. <laughs> I totally understand. I feel exactly the same way. I got into yoga for a similar reason. One, uh, one I just, um, I, I don't have a great back and they don't run in my family mm. <laughs> genetically, mm -hmm. so I need to take care of my back. And sure. I also, um, I can't, like you, I, I just find it so hard to meditate. And I found that yoga is the, the best kind of way for me to, to still be doing something, but a minimal level where I can kind of like switch off a little bit. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I totally understand that. And um, similar to like what you said with the Spanish, it was funny because um, I live in Colombia. So fortunately, I've had lots of opportunities to practice my Spanish. But before I came to Latin America, I just spent six months on like Duolingo like every day. And then I arrived in Costa Rica and I realized that I had no grammar. I only had vocabulary. So I knew loads of words, but I just couldn't put them together in a sentence. Yep. So I understand how it feels to kind of learn a language, but not truly be able to use it. 
Yeah, that actually that's that's spot on and fascinating. And actually, Duolingo is a it's a great example of how to engage the brain appropriately. So, so one of the things that Duolingo does that's really successful is you learn in short little spurts. Uh, in the learning field, that's called micro learning. The learning is spaced out over time. You get periodically tested. It's a really, really effective platform for, as you said, for learning, you know, vocabulary. So again, for learning the what of a language, for learning the pieces that you need of the puzzle. But it's one thing to know the what, it's another thing to know how, right? And how is behavior. And the how is mediated by a completely different part of the brain. So sports are a great analogy. You know, it's it's one thing to read every book on how to how to be an effective putter in golf. You can memorize chapter and verse books on putting. Does that mean you know how to putt? No, you have to go out and hit the ball and you get real-time interactive feedback. And they're, they're two completely different systems in the brain for mediating that. So yeah, you had vocabulary and that's useful and you need that, but what you really need is to immerse yourself and be actually using the language, literally speaking the words, right? Literally moving your, your throat and your tongue and, and you know your mouth opening and all that and learning that behavior, the behavioral learning needs to happen. And that's mediated by a different part of the brain. Yeah, definitely. I felt that when, uh, yeah, just the whole process of learning Spanish. Yeah. But I'd love to get into the main the main thing that we're looking to talk about today, which is soft skills and hard skills. Now, I studied psychology. I just have a bachelor degree, but I never really fully understood. I understand vaguely what soft skills and hard skills are, but at the same time, I wouldn't really be able to give a full description. So I'd love to hear one from you. Like, what is the difference between soft skills and hard skills? And why do you think they're important? So... First thing, full disclosure, I had never heard those terms when I was an academic. And when I first heard the terms hard skills and soft skills about four years ago at a, at a learning technology conference, I was like, what the heck is this? What, 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 what is a hard school? And, and, and more importantly, what is a soft skill? I mean, these, these terms don't tell me anything. So I started digging around in it and looking up definitions and, and studying and such. And, and, and here's, here's my take. Hard skills are technical skills. So if I study mathematics and I become good at algebra, that's a hard skill. If I study R or Python or uh, statistical programming languages, that's a hard skill. Uh, if I learn how to use you know, Microsoft Office, those are hard skills. They're about knowledge, they're about information, they're about facts, and again, they're about knowing, you know, what they're about. So they're kind of like the vocabulary in, in, in our language analogy. Soft skills, which by the way, I think that's an absolutely terrible term for what it represents. And to be honest, I haven't met anybody in learning development who, who likes the term if, and not let those, not let your unconscious biases influence how you behave, let's say in the workplace. So hard skills are about knowledge and information and facts. They're about knowing what. People skills are about behavior and they're about emotion. They're about knowing how to do things and about having a feel for situations. And, and people use the term situational awareness, which is actually quite accurate. So it, it's about what we do, how we do it, and our intent. And I would argue that people skills, in fact, there's, there's data on this, people skills are way more important to job success and frankly success in the world than hard skills. You can always train up on a new hard skill. And in fact, you can train people skills and, and we'll, get into, we'll get into that and how challenging it is. 
but it's it's really really important for success and unfortunately we don't do a very good job of, of training these these people skills and I, I would love to get into that now. I mean, I'm really curious to know, like you said, hard skills is knowledge based. So from my perception, it's quite easy to learn. However, I definitely think there are certain things in this world which I probably would find harder than others just because of my natural disposition. Yep. And then soft skills definitely sounds like something which is more personality based. But I know there's really no black and white answer to this. How can these skills be learned and is one harder to learn than the other, would you say? Yeah. Okay. So let, let's let's get into a, a few details here. I think for, first, let, let me set the stage and talk about basically three learning systems in the brain. So one is what mm -hmm. I call the what system. That's the knowledge system. That's the cognitive system. And really, that's the hard skills or the technical skills system. And you're right that some knowledge is easy to learn. I mean, differential equations is not easy to learn. Calculus is not easy to learn, whereas geometry maybe is, you know, is a little bit easier, at least for some people. Um, so the difficulty of, of hard skill learning definitely varies. But the system in the brain that does that learning is what I call the what system. It's the cognitive system. And again, it involves the prefrontal cortex and the, and the medial temporal lobes. It's, it's a system where you mentally rehearse things, you work out math problems, ultimately to store it in long-term memory. So that's one system. And really, that's the system that most people think about when they think about learning. And frankly, that's the system that gets targeted almost exclusively in education and training. But there are two other systems in the brain that are completely distinct from that cognitive system that matter. One is the behavioral learning system. And I call this the how system. So is this a system that learns how to do things? You know, it's one thing to know what you need to do to build something or to operate a machine. It's another thing to have the behavioral repertoire to actually operate that machine to, to know how. Completely different system in the brain. It's deep down in the brain. It's called the striatum. And this system learns simply through reward and punishment. And, and this is you know, you've heard of B.F. Skinner mm -hmm. from your psychology degree. I mean, B.F. Skinner studied behavioral learning. Yeah. He put an animal in a context. They generated a behavior and he either rewarded it or punished it. And he could actually change their behavior and build these behavioral repertoires in animals just through reward and punishment. That's this how system. That's the stride and that's the behavioral system. The third system is an emotional learning system. I call this the feel system. This is the system that helps you develop empathy that uh, is affected by your personality, as you mentioned. This system really develops that situational awareness. Long story short, hard skills and technical skill learning is mediated by that cognitive system, the what system. People skills require engagement of all three systems. You need to not only know what like empathy is, but you need to know how to feel empathy and you need to know how to show empathy. So the reason that people skills, soft skills are so much harder to train is because effective soft skills training requires that you broadly engage three systems in the brain, whereas traditional hard skill training requires that you only engage one system in the brain. And that's, that's basically it. Okay. Say, for example, if I didn't have the right, the right people skills and I came to you and I was like, I need to improve this or I need help. How would you help me or how would you help uh, a client of yours? Yeah. So the typical, you know, the traditional way that people get trained, let's say an employee at a corporation, 
who's getting training on, you know, whether it's hard skills or whether it's people skills, is going to be through e-learning, right? Computer-based training. And there are hundreds, hundreds of companies out there, learning and development companies that build software that allow you to learn, you know, anytime, anywhere, right? On your mobile device, on your tablet, on your laptop, 24-7. They use micro-learning, so short bursts of training, spread out over time, they test you. Basically, these e-learning platforms, the good ones at least, very effectively engage the what system, the cognitive system, so they can train the hard skills. Many of them use the exact same approach to train people skills, and that's why they're not effective. If you're gonna try to train people skills with an e-learning platform, then the key is to either build or look for an e-learning platform that uses what's called storytelling. So if I wanna teach you about empathy, I could send you a, a training module that gives you the definition of empathy and gives a bunch of you know, verbal descriptions. That's just teaching you the definition of empathy. That's teaching you the what. Or I could build a video of a story where managers are interacting with employees, employees are interacting with each other, and you're seeing situations where, let's say, a manager is showing empathy to an employee, and you're seeing that that goes really well, and the employee's confident and satisfied. And you might see then other situations where empathy is not being shown. So the idea is to, is to embed the training in a story. That is not easy to do. This is where, what, where, where I argue that science and art really are at the intersection. Um, but if you build good storytelling content, and it could be video, it could be animation, whatever, the key is that what you're doing is you're drawing the learner in to that learning scenario so that they see themselves as, as part of the learning. They see themselves as from the perspective of multiple actors within the story. What this is going to do is engage the emotional learning center, that feel center, which is going to be fairly effective for building people skills. Now, those exist. There are companies that do this and do this quite well. Not very many, but there are companies that do this. What I am going to say, though, is I believe that the future of people skills training, and for that matter, hard skills training, are the immersive technologies. These are technologies like virtual reality and augmented reality. And this is a technology that I have tongue-in-cheek immersed myself in over the last four years. These technologies are amazing because in virtual reality and in augmented reality, all of these learning systems in the brain are engaged simultaneously. In virtual reality, I can literally walk a mile in somebody else's shoes, okay? I don't just read what it's like to be African-American transgender person. I can actually become that person for five minutes. I can then, you know, be ridiculed or, or whatever, be treated the way that they might be treated poorly or well. That doesn't mean that I, you know, doesn't mean that I fully understand, but in a five-minute interaction where I become somebody else and experience life through their eyes and their ears, it's a game changer. And it can fundamentally alter my thinking much more than just reading verbal descriptions. Yeah. Yeah. I had um, a previous episode based on virtual reality and it became increasingly obvious that even though virtual reality will be fantastic for entertainment, yep. I think the main area which it will change is um, training. And it really does seem like that. And we discuss such a wide variety of areas which can be enhanced through virtual reality or augmented reality. 
and yeah i'm i'm super excited to see to see what that's going to do i was going to ask as well um one of the things that i wanted to discuss was beforehand i've seen that the tech industry in the us currently has a huge talent shortage so they just don't have enough people in the country that has the skills which all these tech companies need and one of the answers to that was immigration because they said well at least i read that's one way of filling that kind of deficit or like meeting the demand do you think that is possible for the us to to meet this demand like organically from its own its own population i mean it sounds like it should be pretty easy like you said this is hard skills that they'd probably be learning so effectively or like um in theory that should be easy right yeah i mean um so there absolutely is a talent shortage and and one of the things that i see a lot in my own research is it is a lot cheaper in time and money to upskill and reskill your your existing employees with new technical skills or for that matter with people skills than it is to go you know advertise and try to find somebody out there on the market with the perfect fit to the job that you have that takes a long time you've still got to onboard them onto your company you know, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas, whereas if you have an employee that has even 50% of the skills that they need and you have effective training tools that can provide them with that other 50%, that's the way to go. It's cheaper in time and money. You're also building more engaged employees who value you as an employer because of what you're doing for them. You're seeing that with companies like Amazon committing to upskill all of their workers. That said, and I, I don't want to get into politics because it would because uh, <laughs> I could talk about that all day, given what's going on in America. But immigration, I mean, so, you, you know, you're going to know where I stand in five seconds. But diversity is a good thing, period. Diversity of thought, diversity of culture. America was built on that. And it's part of why America is great. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. <laughs> um, so I think you want both. And, and again, there's data on this. A middle-aged, boomer, male, white employee base can do a fine job. Nothing against you know white male boomers. But you're going to have much more innovation. You're going to be able to think outside the box. You're not going to have groupthink if you have gender diversity, ethnic diversity, sexual orientation diversity, etc. So, you know, I think you want both, put it that way. Definitely. I think I've been writing about startups for a while. And that seems to be like a, a reoccurring theme that like diversity really does bring its benefits and not just for the sake of like, it's morally the right thing to do more or less is but because yeah, it does have the bring the results that many companies want and desire. It does. It does really, really does. And, and again, there's data on that. I mean, this is like, yeah, sure. It's not just because it's the right thing to do, although it is the right thing to do, but there are positive benefits for the bottom line of a company and, and, and forward thinking companies know that and they see that and they're, and they're doing something about it. Where do you think companies stand at the moment when it comes to this training that you're talking about? Are they still like in the dark ages of like sending people like descriptions of what empathy is or are they waking up or like what is, where do companies stand at the moment? You're obviously trying to get the, this message out there. Um, and how's, how's it looking on their, their radars? Yeah, I mean, um, <laughs> this, this is where I think personality determines things. You can look at the glasses half full or half empty. I'm truly amazed sometimes by how, how small a budget learning and development, you know, it, human resources has for training of employees. And I, I think part of that is carry over from the past that education and training that's a cost center you know that's just costing us money 
not looking at the fact that a well-trained employee base actually makes you money. So I think that that's part of it. But the other is that, again, a lot of these training solutions are ineffective. Let's take academics, okay? And this is incredibly ironic. I spent 25 years as a basic scientist studying the neurobiological basis of learning. And yet, how did I, how did I teach undergraduates? I said, sit your butt in that chair for 50 minutes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lecture at you. That's a terrible way to educate. I mean, the brain tells us it's a terrible way to educate. So we're stuck with these arcane methodologies that don't work. We know they don't work. We know why they don't work. So, I mean, I guess the short answer to your question is the solutions are there. They exist. The companies are out there that sell these things. The prices are reasonable, but people aren't getting the message. One of my missions is one reason why I, I write so much and blog so much and, and try to try to use plain English as much as I can to try to help get this message out because um, the problems are huge. And a sector that I work in extensively is healthcare. Well, education and training in healthcare is a real problem. In America, about 15% of Americans actually have health literacy, healthcare literacy. That is really understand their healthcare situation. I mean, this is why we have, you know, so many people that are obese, people ending up on diabetes, kidney failure, all these things. And then when you have some medical condition, we say, here, go read this piece of paper that describes your medical condition. Instead of walking them through what's going on, again, using technology, say, like virtual reality or augmented reality. When you say healthcare literacy, do you mean like nutritional understanding of like a balanced diet? Nutritional understanding of a balanced diet, you know, why exercise is important, how your kidneys function, how you can get diabetes from what you eat. I mean, you know, it depends. So like, for example, recently I was diagnosed with high blood pressure and high cholesterol, which is really common for, for people my age. Well, you know, I didn't really know much about that. And if I could have a virtual reality experience, let's say, that walks me through how cholesterol works, how blood pressure works. And let's say in VR, I'm talking to somebody, or I'm in a VR experience with somebody who lost 10 pounds and started exercising daily and their blood pressure's down and their cholesterol's down. So the way we teach people about their health, their bodies, what they should be eating and such is, you know, here's a piece of paper, as opposed to experiential learning. Experiential learning, walking a mile in somebody else's shoes, will have a bigger effect on my behavior change, changing my behavior, than just reading, you know, going to a website and reading about blood pressure. And what role do you think apps could play in this? Because obviously we're not quite, I mean, we're getting there with virtual reality and augmented reality. However, apps still have uh, some benefit. Obviously, like we've discussed Duolingo before, and I recently had to change my diet for my health. And I downloaded an app for that. I bought it and it's been really useful. Do you think that like, in this interim, like between like um, before virtual reality and augmented reality really takes off, that applications on our phones could fill this gap? Absolutely. And in, and in fact, I see them as complementary. So let's pretend virtual reality and augmented reality don't exist. So, uh, you know, I, I need to change my diet to, you know, supplement my health. So I read about diet and all that, right? The traditional way, which, which, which is not very effective. Okay, but I complement that with an app where I take a picture of the food that I'm going to eat and it calculates the number of calories or, 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 or whatever. So it's super effective. In fact, I, I lost 10 pounds in the last three months. Congratulations. Um, and yeah, thank you. And, and the way I did it was simple. I weigh myself every morning at sometime between seven and eight. I write it down. 
And then at night, well, and, and then I try not to eat after about 7 p.m. And at night when, man, I'd really like to, you know, have a little scoop of ice cream, I go, yeah, but if I do, my weight's going to go up tomorrow. Okay, so that's how these apps work, right? It's like you're tracking, you're collecting data, you're tracking your behavior, and you're getting immediate feedback. It's highly motivating, and it helps you resist those short-term urges that you might have for the long-term good of yourself, okay? Now then, now, now keeping those apps, and again, I, I think that technology should stay and should, be, should always be there. Now, instead of having the, you know, reading PDFs and going to websites, imagine that initial education is in VR. That's just gonna speed that educational process more. And then again, that is, that's complemented with the apps. Where, where I wanna go with this, I see the future of these immersive technologies for things like healthcare education, for, for wellness, for stress reduction, for resilience, for mental health for that matter. The combination of these immersive technologies with things like biofeedback and physiological sensors, sensors that are tracking my blood pressure in real time, tracking my heart rate, tracking my anxiety level, tracing, tracking my stress level from physiological measures, and then using that in concert with the immersive technologies to titrate, to you know increase the training and the stress level or whatever, reducing it and seeing how my physiology reacts. So that's a long-winded answer to a very straightforward question, but no, I, I, think, I think the apps are absolutely here to stay and I think they add a lot of value. Awesome. Excellent. Yeah, I agree. My last question to you, if people are listening to this and they want to improve their soft skills, their hard skills, probably soft skills since they're somewhat harder to learn, what advice would you have for those listeners? So if you're a chief learning officer at a company and you're looking to roll out some soft skills training, I highly recommend that you look at e-learning platforms that incorporate storytelling into their content. That will be very effective for soft skills and people skills. I would also recommend that you look at virtual reality and, and augmented reality tools. If you're just an individual, you're not looking to build out a, an education and training program for a company, but you're just talking about yourself, again, you know, you can get an Oculus Go VR headset for under $200. And the number of apps that are free or are very, very cheap within the Oculus store, apps that are very relevant to soft skills and people skills, I would highly recommend put down the 200 bucks, go grab some of those free apps or those really you know, low cost apps, and you can, you, can develop your, you can develop your people skills very quickly and enhance them. That would, I mean, that would be my main recommendation. I, you know, I, I think you can find storytelling uh, apps for free, probably on the uh, computer-based by Google or something. I'll be honest, I haven't really tracked that kind of stuff, but I would I would go VR. That's what I would do. I had no idea it was so accessible. That's um, that's great. You know, a couple of years ago it was two grand, and now you can get a headset for a couple hundred bucks. Yeah. That's why you say like, yeah, 200. I'm like, wow, that's, that's really gone down in price. It's kind of like yep. phones, I suppose. It's like yep. what now costs today, like you can get for $100, would have cost like $1,000 like 10 years ago or something, I guess. Totally, it's amazing, yep. Uh, it's good to see it's going in the right direction. Yeah. Yeah. Todd, if people do want to keep up with you, uh, what is their best way of doing that? Sure. Basically, I've encapsulated my life on LinkedIn, <laughs> at least my professional life. 
So if you just type in Todd Maddox on LinkedIn, find me, connect with me. I, I love communicating with people. I'm also on Twitter. Uh, my handle there is W Todd Maddox. My first name is actually William. I go by my middle name, but so W Todd Maddox. Those are two great ways to interact with me and follow me and, and, and see what I'm up to. Awesome. Excellent. Todd, i got to say, I've learned a lot from this. Excellent. Which is uh, kind of ironic since it's all about learning. <laughs> but, but it's been very enjoyable. It's been fantastic. Thank you so much. Yeah. And yeah, awesome. Thank you, Sam. I really appreciate the uh, opportunity to talk and to get to know you a little bit. This has been really fun. Thanks. You run to something. According to Research Digest, a study in JMIR mental health has asked whether or not the general public would be happy for tech companies to use their social media posts to look for signs of depression. Now, the study found that although the public sees the benefit of using algorithms to identify at-risk individuals, privacy concerns are still an issue. Out of 183 people who completed the survey, just over a fifth felt that their social media activity would highlight their low moods, and only 3% felt the specific content of these posts would betray how they were feeling. Participants tended to acknowledge the potential positives of Facebook classifying our mental health, such as widening access to health services. However, they didn't feel that the risk to their privacy was worth the potential benefits of this technology. And even though 60% supported the idea of automated algorithms providing healthcare information to users potentially experiencing depression, only 15% of those surveyed were happy for this to occur without their consent. That's it for today. That's our show. But if you like this and you want to hear more just like it, well, you can find many, many, many other episodes at sociable.co or on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, basically anywhere you get your podcasts, you can find us. Just search Brains Bike Back. You can also sign up to our newsletter. It goes out every Friday. It includes this podcast and other stories and articles that we work on here at The Sociable. You can go to sociable.co, scroll down on the right-hand side, add your name and your email, and you'll be kept up to date every Friday. Thank you, and I hope you join us again in the near future. If you look at what soft skills are, though, I think a better term and a term that I use is people skills. So it's the ability to show active listening, to not be looking at your phone while somebody's talking to you. It's about effective communication, which involves listening to people, which involves communicating differently with different people using different communication styles. It's about showing empathy. You know, it's about literally being able to walk a mile in somebody else's shoes and understand where they're coming from and the ability to sort of rein in unconscious biases.